Hi, this is Ross Payton, and this is episode zero of Leto Narrative Dissidents. This is a new limited series podcast I'm doing with Greg Stolze, creator of Unknown Armies and A Dirty World, and James Wallace, creator of The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Each episode, we will look at a game and analyze it. We're running a Kickstarter now to fund the rest of the season, so if you like this episode, please back it. I'll have more details after the episode. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to episode zero of Leto Narrative Dissidents, a new podcast about uh, RPGs, role-playing games, uh, where we're going to dissect uh, a particular game and figure out what it does, how it does it well, and why people play it. Uh, I am Ross Payton, uh, the host of Role-Playing Public Radio. Uh, I've also created Base Raiders. I've written for Clips Phase and uh, a lot of other games over the years, and uh but yeah, I am not alone in this podcast. Uh, my two co-hosts. Uh, first off is uh, Greg Stolze. Hi. Uh, you've probably heard me on other podcasts, either shilling my wares or just doing actual <laughs> plays of Termination Shock and Million Dollar Soulmate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also known for designing the ore system that powers godlike and wild talents and rain. I did some work for Delta Green and co-created Unknown Armies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my other podcast uh, host here is uh, James Wallace. Hello, I'm James Wallace. I'm on the other side of the Atlantic, responsible for strange time differences and occasional lag. I've been kicking around the industry since the 80s. I'm best known for running Hogshead Publishing in the 90s. We published Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. We published Nobilis, second edition, The Great White Book. Uh, and a bunch of others, including the New Style line, which basically kick-started the story game revolution of the late 90s. Um, I designed the first of those, The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I also co-created the storytelling game Once Upon a Time, uh, available from Atlas Games, now celebrating more years in print than I care to think about. Uh, Coming up on not far off 30 years in print, um, which is scary. Most recently, I did, well, I did the third edition of Baron Munchausen, which came out from Fantasy Flight a few years ago. Uh, I did the reboot of Paranoia, and I did uh, a kick-started uh, solo game, <laughs> solo heartbreaker called Alas Vegas, for which I created the Fugue system, which also powers Steve D's uh, Relics RPG, which is getting some really good press. Mm-hmm. Um, and the purpose of this RP of this, uh, podcast, um, is to, uh, for the three of us to look at a particular game, um, each episode and really, uh, let the three of us sort of like figure out what it does, what, what it does and how it does it and why, and, um, yeah, what's good and you know, what works for us and what doesn't. Um, this is, as I mentioned, this is episode zero. So this episode will be freely available to everybody. Uh, but, uh, I think sometime in the future, uh, we will be launching a Kickstarter to finance a season of this, um, uh, the base, I think we're thinking about six episodes. Um, and of course, whenever whoa, we the Kickstarter, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll have more, um, episodes uh so yeah well let's keep an eye out for the kickstarter if you're listening to this um and wherever you're downloading this i'm sure we'll have more information as well but um 
So, but yeah, this episode will be free regardless, you know. We the, promise the... to desperately promote it as soon as it's <laughs> happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, this episode we're going to be looking at Apocalypse World uh, from Vincent Baker. Um, and it is, of course, the the one of the most influential RPGs of this century, I would argue. Um, so at least the last 10, 15 years, um, because it led to the, the powered by the apocalypse movement of role-playing games, which have spawned, uh, dozens of games, uh, uh, has dominated Kickstarter for quite a bit. Although that's recently changed the last couple of years as fifth head compatible has sort of taken that mantle. But, um, it also led to new iterations such as Blades in the Dark, the uh, slash the Forged in the Dark system, and uh, uh, s- sparked a lot of conversations about game design and what what a role playing game is and what it should do. And um, so we're we're going to be looking at uh, uh, the 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 game that started all of this, uh, Apocalypse World. So um, what what does uh, our first segment is what the game does. So, uh, Greg, what does Apocalypse World do? Well, it um, emulates an ongoing series in a post-apocalyptic setting, something like Into the Borderlands or Mad Max, uh, at a hard R level. This is this makes no pretense about not being horny and violent it it (laughs) steers into those pretty hard it focuses very intensely on the pcs it is very it's straight up front about the pcs are the most important characters the story is happening to them because they are so cool and awesome and sexy they are more worth paying attention to than anyone else in the setting and this is not terribly uncommon. Uh, Feng Shui had this, uh, was one of the first games to draw this really strong distinction between, okay, mm-hmm. player characters aren't like everyone else. They're better. And that's mm-hmm. why you focus on them. Uh, Apocalypse World is the same and focuses on that very mechanically as well. It is a player-facing system. We'll get in. I'll get into that a little more in the how it does what it does. Mm-hmm. But it lay. It has a laser-like focus on the PCs, and I would also say the other innovation of Apocalypse World was how it treated GMing. Uh, it does game mastering differently, and arguably, for a lot of people, anyway easier Mm -hmm. than the traditional approach of we're going to get a guy who's going to make a story with all these branching off paths and then we will walk down it and try and find the one option that he didn't think up in advance and jump on that in both feet Mm -hmm. yeah so in general I view get let me let me digress here for a bit (laughs) and hold forth oh no I view gaming as a kind of conversation between the players who are chaos agents who don't know what's coming next, but who have agendas, the GM who is 
an organizing agent who does have ideas about what could be coming next, and the dice, which are just pure chaos. Different systems change the balance of how much focus is given to any specific element. A lot of systems, especially in the trad space, are very Um, Mm GM-focused. More indie games focus extremely random or are more player-focused. I would argue that D&D, in many ways, is kind of replaces the DM, supplements the DM's authority with published materials because you can do that with a dungeon. There are, it's much more easy to keep a narrative constrained when it's literally inside happening inside a box, <laughs> which is, is why yeah. it's so easy to learn how to be a dungeon master compared to running vampire, the masquerade say. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. I do want to talk about uh, in a little bit about the, you know, you're talking about how the players are the coolest, most important people in the thing. And I was immediately thought of the OSR uh, and that that sort of mindset of uh, uh, GMing where the P- where you're trying to uh, uh, the GM is trying to simulate a given setting and the PCs are no different than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, first, I kind of want to touch on James. Um, what 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 do you what does apocalypse world uh do in in your uh view well my my top point is exactly the same as greg's it's the coolest characters you are you're you're the biggest badasses in that world at that time or at least you're you're striving to be okay um it's i'm i'm going to agree with with greg for on the first point it's about and i think it's a key point that it's about the biggest badass characters mm-hmm. out there giving players cool characters to be. And this is one of the things for me that's always sold a role-playing game. The two questions I always ask are, what's the world and who am I in it and what am I going to do? All right, that's three questions. (laughs) And if the answers to those questions are not interesting, I'm not going to buy your game, much less play it. So it's interesting because I come from the British tradition of role-play, which is more influenced by the American school than by the European school, but is still distinct. We had a game in the early 80s called Dragon Warriors, created by Dave Morris and Oliver Johnson, which I, I, I actually republished in a single-volume hardback in 2008, I think. Uh, but the original Never. was published as paperback books. Of This is – it's great. Dave was – Dave was kind of my mentor. He was also my best man, one of, one of several mentors. Um, he was also the best-selling author in the UK in the early 90s because he wrote six – Teenage Mutant Hero Turtle books. They were called the <laughs> Hero Turtles over here because the BBC had a thing about the word ninja um, being a bad word and not allowing it. Uh, but he wrote six wow. of these books, each of them selling more than a million copies in a year. He was on a fixed fee. But and, I'm, I digress. Anyway, Dragon Warriors <laughs> is basically, it's D&D-esque. It's very much, it's all on, on D6, or primarily on, on D6. Um, the, the books were sold in bookshops rather than in game shops uh, to an audience who had never come across roleplay before. But it's not fighters and wizards and clerics. It's it's barbarians and knights, and it's the D&D character classes on steroids. 
in any scene, you are the most important people there. You are the heroes. You are the heroes of the story. Um, so this is something that a lot of British designers and British players have kicked around with for, for some time. But I think Apocalypse World does it really well because these are not your standard. This is not, oh, it's Mad Max and that one from that movie. These are distinct original characters that feel different and feel unique and, and feel like they in a real world kind of define the world of Apocalypse World, which is kind of my second point. But it does, some design harks back to, I think, original D&D in that um, there's basically no background there. It's the, the main point of the background is on the cover of the book. It's the, world, the word apocalypse, which is what D&D did. It said Dungeons and Dragons, and that's pretty much all the background you get. All the rest of the background is defined by elements within the system itself. D&D is just fantasy. Apocalypse world is whatever apocalypse you want it to be. It does not dictate at any point. And so there's an element of collaborative world building in there. You work together to shape this world, to work out what its details are and how it functions. There's there a key quote. I, it does not it, it does not define the world, but it implies the world. How about that? Yes. Um, although what it implies are the characters and the effect that the characters are going to have on the world. There's very little, you know, there's no monster lists and stuff. This is a pit that I think dra- uh, Dungeon World into you know possibly the best known powered by the apocalypse game that has lists and lists of monsters and the moment you start doing that you're defining the world apocalypse world does very little the only i mean it talks about the psychic maelstrom that um we'll we'll come on to but there's a key quote on page 80 which by coincidence i have up in front of me the words do not pre-plan a storyline and i'm not fucking around the quote <laughs> um and it's the same it, the GM is as much a participant in the creation of this narrative, the, the, the improvisational creation of the narrative, as the players are. Mm-hmm. They should not pre-plan either the storyline or really the background world to any great extent. We will come on to threat maps later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's really it's great. That was one of the things, there are many things, that uh, the original edition of Dungeons & Dragons did brilliantly well almost by accident. And I think Vincent <laughs> Baker recognized that. And, and I don't know if it was a conscience copy, but I do think it is one of the strengths of the game rather than a weakness, that it has no clearly defined background. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of this seems obvious when when you say it, but like then think, think of what the average, well, I don't know the average, but a very common mindset of Dungeons and Dragons uh, players and, and, and DMs are, which is that there is a world and uh, my job as a DM is to to simulate this reality, uh, uh, this this fictional, this world, and to be fair and consistent and to give and to present a challenge to players. Um, in other words, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, especially uh, this is very common in the OSR, the the so-called old school renaissance, is that it's basically like a tabletop version of an MMO and is to like, this happens regardless of what your player characters do. And um, it is your job, it is your task to become special, to become special. You start as nobody and you have to earn that specialness um, because you're, you're, you, the same, the rules that run your character are the same for everyone else. You're, you're no different than anyone else. And you must, you must fight to, to earn your place as, as a chosen one or a destined character. Which is a legitimate way to play. Mm -hmm. It's just not the only legitimate way to play. 
Yeah, that's a good point because a lot of and that's sort of the mindset that a lot of uh, D and D players I think have and OSR players is that this is the only real way. You know, it's it's sort of this uh uh bravado or like i'm so i'm cool because i managed to get make a level i I managed to earn my my, uh, wizard got to level 20 the hard way and um that yeah and and so vincent baker was i think trying to like no no no, this is the this is a way you could just have fun and tell a cool story (laughs) what if we had fun and you didn't have to grind (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and um i mean there there is interesting fun to be had in in the mindset of these games because but then it becomes sort of a you know the adversarial mindset of like the dm the players and dms are each trying to outwit each other and um that's only fun if everybody's on that like mindset if if some players not on that mindset it becomes very unfun because it's like i want to see what i want my wizard to to get revenge on the people who killed his parents and like no i don't give a shit about that (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that, Pally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's the problems RPGs have always had. Um, The idea that you start at low level. Well, there's no such thing as a low level Jedi. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. In Apocalypse World, everyone starts essentially as a Jedi. You've all got the cool powers. You've all got the unique things that only you can do. And that's fantastic. Uh, that is what people want from a role-play experience. I think it does as a game also, however, starting at that system, that, that system, that level requires a level of knowledge, prior knowledge of what a role-playing game is and how it works mm-hmm. and just being able to, to assimilate a rule system, a system of mechanics and understand how to, how to kind of optimize it and use it on, on the fly. This is not yeah, a game I, I, would, I, have... I would recommend for first-timers. I have heard some complaints that it's not, and yet at the same time, I feel like we can, this, this is my, you know, points for how it does it. It, it seems to me that a lot of games, especially games in the, the, the trad games, that is non D and D stuff from the nineties, let us say, Mm-hmm. There was the assumption that the GM would do all this work and would have all this literary knowledge and ability. And if you're people like you and me, James and Ross, are probably <laughs> people who read a lot and were really interested in stories and media and maybe got degrees in English literature. So to us, the idea. I feel seen. <laughs> the idea of oh yeah well of course you'll want to have some rising action and you'll need a denouement and this and that it's second nature mm-hmm. but uh, not everyone who wants to run a game is an english major mm-hmm. and i think apocalypse world in many ways was okay what can we do for gms who don't have a master's degree in arts and liberal studies and yeah. what it does for that what it does for them is provides support in the form of moves and fronts rather than just, oh, the GM hand waves it. The GM decides what happens in the rest of the world. So it does that, and it also has player-facing rules. Only the players roll. Their roles are the parts that bring that chaos, that die-style chaos into it. Mm-hmm. And as a uh, GM... Here's a question. Uh-huh. 
sorry, where did that come from? Did that start with Apocalypse World? That idea that only the players. I mean, we stole it. We stole it from somewhere for Paranoia. Um, it seems no, to be I think, fairly, I think this, fairly widespread now. This this sort of the conversation all came about from the forge. Like Vincent Baker um, was there. There's a whole thing in the early 2000s uh, with Ron Edwards, um, who wrote Sorcerer, and um, Vincent Baker and a lot of other people who were involved in this uh, online forum called the Forge, where they're talking about role playing game design, storytelling game design, and a lot of these ideas came out from these sort of games. So and that that sort of discussion and those those. The, the forge is now closed, but you can read up on those discussions and this things like the uh, game as narrative simulationist uh, theory of game design and uh, which is eventually supplanted and all this other stuff. Um, so like, yeah, there was a conversation starting like around 2000, early 2000s that really sort of eventually led into Apocalypse World, which I think uh, first edition was 2009. So um, at some point, someone yeah. said having the GM roll dice and having the D- GM's dice interact with the player's dice is not actually more random than just having the players roll dice. Mm-hmm. It's uh, just adding an extra layer of finicky handling time to games that already have are at risk of the problem of packing a half hour of fun into a two hour combat. Um, so, and that's, a really good segue into our second segment officially. Uh, uh, officially. Just, yeah. I thought we were there, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We, we, we kind of do. I mean, that, yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's get back into mm-hmm. the actual discussion. Um, something I've been doing in my own design that I think has arisen from seeing people respond to apocalypse world and powered by the apocalypse is I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, People really are hungry and thirsty for GM support beyond just giving them more stuff and more options. They want things that tell them this is how you structure it. Mm -hmm. And so you can see a little of that in the third edition of Unknown Armies where, uh, you know, I break things up. I'm like, okay, when you are planning things and thinking things up for your game, you want to be antagonistic and you want to think what is the worst choice I can force these players? What is the hardest pressure I can put on them? What is the point on their character sheet that hurts and how can I press on that hard? Mm -hmm. And then once you're gathered around the table, I want you to switch to being the character's biggest fans and you know, let's see how awesome they can be and how cool they can make this story. Because mm-hmm. on one hand, the GM does kind of have to play against the players. On the other hand, the GM has to help the players. And it's a very weird situation to be in. Apocalypse World has dealt with that problem by constraining the GM, but giving the, at the same time, giving them the structure to work with. It's, you know, yeah, when the players do this, then you get to take a move as hard as you want to. But because you cannot take your moves until the players have triggered them, it keeps you from just being a killer GM who throws insurmountable challenges at them until they are crushed 
and you're left alone in the basement on Sunday night wondering why no one showed up for your game. Um, so to explain that in in the most uh, uh, common sort of a powered by the apocalypse uh, game mechanics, uh, the the easiest example I can I can I can now I have not run or played Apocalypse World itself, but I have run and played in many powered by the apocalypse games and. Um, the so yeah the idea is the players the gm never rolls the dice the players only roll the dice and so for example when the players face a a, a threat a mo- you know let's say a bad guy that they want to kill uh so it's combat in apocalypse world and other powered by the apocalypse games the gm cannot does not roll to attack for, the monster does not roll to attack the the bad guy does not roll to attack uh because the gm doesn't roll dice so as a GM, I cannot hurt the players with this bad guy who is pointing a gun at them until the player rolls the dice to do something about it. Like, are they fighting back? Are they trying to escape? Well, roll the dice to see if your character can misses with the attack, uh, misses. But if you attack the bad guy, then the bad guy gets to automatically inflict damage on you. They just do. Now, if you roll really well, it'll be less damage. Or maybe if you have a special move, you could avoid that damage entirely. But the default is when you attack a bad guy, the bad guy inflicts damage back on you automatically. So uh, that that's the mindset as opposed to like D&D or a lot of other games where the bad, you know, the GM rolls to attack, the player rolls to attack, and you can have things where both of you hit, or one of you hits, or both of you miss, and then you're just rolling dice until someone yeah. someone rolls above an eight. Uh, Which, yeah. let's be honest, is is fun. Rolling yeah. dice. I'm I'm playing D and D with my kids and some of their kids over Zoom at the moment, and it's it's fun. They really get into those <laughs> long, to me, quite tedious combats. Um, and you know, that's full of adrenaline. And someone was down to one hit point last week and burst into tears. It's <laughs> it's quite something. It still works. Wait, James, are you I'm saying s- that you made a child cry with gaming? <laughs> uh, and, and, and I'm and proud of it. And and yeah, holding, okay. I think, you know, Just, I will put that on a t-shirt. I made my <laughs> child cry with gaming. She's um she's a bad loser. She's a <laughs> she's a table kicker. I'm perfectly honest. She's uh you know, the number of games that have ended up spread over the kitchen floor because she was losing and did not want to lose. She did not want to get to the point where the game was over and she had lost. She would rather cause us all to have to pick up all the pieces from underneath the fridge uh-huh. for that to happen. Um, we're working on it. Yeah. So, well, but no, you know, the they, pop- they won. Apocalypse and- World seems to assume that you are not a table kicker. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. It, you are in control. You have the agency. The players the, and the player characters yeah. have the agency at all time. If they get damaged, it's their fault. There is mm-hmm. no... The, the DM cannot just do bad things to them. It, there's always an yeah. element of player choice right. and player the, dice The bad guy involved. cannot hurt you unless you make a roll. Like, the bad the guy cannot do it again. cannot yeah. fudge rolls. Because mm-hmm. the players are... Either way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's. I think one of the things to explain the difference between... Powered by the Apocalypse and like D and D per se. D and D emphasizes much more the game aspect. I think of like sports. Like we, every, sports fans assign narratives to their to sports all the time, but yet <laughs> sports did not always fall that narrative. Like oh, there's an underdog team and they've they've done so well, they defied the odds, and then like they just get crushed. Why? Well, it's a game and that can happen. Like it has nothing to do. The narrative we assign to it never does not 
it, it has no bearing on what what will actually happen in in an individual game. But well, um, why didn't the scrappy underdogs win? Well, it turns out that the yeah. other team could hit the ball farther and run faster, and that's exactly. ultimately what matters in baseball. So, like, we like sports because of that chaos, because of that unpredictability. But on the other hand, you could not have that in like a movie or a novel because if you know the hero. Oh, wrestling. The bad guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's wrestling. Like in wrestling, <laughs> you have a narrative, and like they, there has to. In sometimes that's subverted. Many times it's subverted. But like there, there's they would you would not have a wrestling match where the the they're swinging chairs at each other and missing for five minutes. People would get <laughs> bored. People like what what is going on? So like, do you want uh uh do you want a game where you don't know what's going to happen because like it's all you know or do you want something that's going to ha- follow some kind of narrative structure like that uh or it, so i guess that that's partially explaining the difference but um yeah yeah but no i i, I agree i think the move system is enormously good at creating mm-hmm. dramatic narrative combats they may not it may not be a structured narrative in terms of the story, and when you're playing a role-playing game like Apocalypse World that is structured around a campaign, it's not a single-session game. You can play it that way, but that's not how it's intended. The main thing is you want the continuing narrative. You want characters to continue or narratives to continue from session to session, possibly in the typical open-ended way that only really RPGs and soap operas and uh, comic books do. The move system is really good at creating that, that dramatic... Uh, thing because everyone has a small selection of superpowers. It's not unlike a superhero combat, in fact. You know what those moves are going to be in advance, but you don't know what order they're going to come out in, and you don't know necessarily how they're going to be countered mm-hmm. or, or uh, what effect they're going um, to have. One thing also that the Powered by the Apocalypse system really emphasizes, um, at least in the games that I've read, Apocalypse World, Monster of the Week, uh, Dungeon World, is to, uh, and a couple others, that the the GM should force the players to describe what their characters are actually doing, not to use the name of the move, not to I read a sitch or I go aggro on the bad guy. I, Those are the names of two apocalypse world moves. Yes, so, yeah, th- thank you. So, like, because players would just look at their the 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 tendency for most players is to look at them as like spells or powers that they do, and so like, well, I activate this spell, I activate this power. And uh, no, like, well, how do you go aggro on this guy? Well, uh, well, I'm just going to aim my gun and shoot him between the eyes. Okay, well, let's roll to see how accurate that you are. That sounds aggro. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a continual emphasis on uh, the GM is supposed to emphasize, like, by only using the character names, not like, uh, hey, Greg, what does uh, uh, Psycho Crusher uh, uh, do? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's Psycho Crusher. What are you doing? And so that it's again to emphasize the the narrative that they're you create a little more with. immersion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The the problem I have with this, I I think it's a great system, but there are a lot of moves, and mm-hmm. that it it's partly the role of the GM to identify when a player is doing something that matches one of their their moves and go, are you doing this? Well. There's a lot of moves to remember. It's like trying to remember the effects of all the spells in the in the D&D player's handbook. There's a, the list of moves at the back of the, the rulebook is four pages long. Um, mm. And it's it's not in terribly big type. And, and some of them are fairly obvious, 
like mm -hmm. dangerous and sexy, but they all have rules-based effects. Mm -hmm. And this is partially mitigated by the fact that everyone is supposed to have a printout of their, their uh, not just the character sheet, uh, but the, uh, the playbook in front of mm -hmm. them. So they have a reference. But the GM still has to remember all of these things, recognize when the situation is coming up in, in play. That does not fit. This is the reason I've never played Apocalypse well, because that's not how I, I GM. I'm, I'm very... Typically, I'll, I'll go, let's play game X, and then I'll just tell us... <laughs> we collaboratively tell a story within that world with some characters. And occasionally, I might look at the rulebook to pretend I'm rem remembering how it works. Um, I'm a very loose DM. I, it's, mm -hmm. I have huge respect for the Apocalypse World combat system um, and move system generally. It's not the way I play games. Well, and that's because you've got that English major thing where, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, crafting a narrative is natural to you. To a lot of people, it's not, which was news to me until I saw people talking about how, you know, until, until this... I couldn't GM. People would just tell me mm. they were trying something and I'd freeze up and not know what was happening. Mm -hmm. But with this, people, you can people GM. People want that hand-holding. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not even hand-holding. It's a structure. It's, you know, mm. if if X, then Y. Okay, I can do that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Whenever I run uh, Powered by the Apocalypse or Blades in the Dark uh, or Blades in the Dark, version i pretty much everybody has those reference sheets handy as, mm -hmm. as printouts uh because a lot of it is it's not just remembering the names of the moves but like there's three mechanical um effects a miss a uh, 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 a partial a, a success but with a complication and then a full success and depending on the move there's multiple uh things you, there's like a checklist of like oh you got a full success choose one out of this list or you, or you got or a partial success you got this uh you know choose one or if you get the full success, you get two out of this list. Mm -hmm. And there's like six things on that list. Um, so and I, yeah, I don't think that's limiting, involved. though. Yeah. Um, it, there, it has tactically meaningful choices, which mm -hmm. is something everybody wants. Everybody yeah. wants their the mechanics undergirding their character to do something and not just be chrome. Yeah. Or, okay, maybe not everybody wants that, but a lot of people like it that, okay, the fact that I'm casting this as a ray of fire does something different than casting it as a ray of frost. Mm -hmm. Even though there, there are, if your system is vague enough, it can be like, oh, well, you know, all these are just ray spells. They do this much damage. Describe that it's frost damage or fire damage or emotional damage, hurt feelings damage. Uh, looking like an idiot in front of the girl you have a crush on damage. So <laughs> there is one. Um, so normally it, it works pretty well. The only thing that, that is a hang up is the read a situation. Um, and there's a few of the moves that are like get information and they, it boils down to answer, get one or, or more of these questions answered. They give you a list of questions, you know, like who's the most dangerous foe? What's my most obvious escape route? Uh, but that's it. And so often, a lot of times, it comes up, uh, the players want information that's not easily answerable by that question. And that's kind of like the mechanics sort of, this is one of the rare times where Apocalypse World sort of mechanics kind of get in the way of 
our uh, enjoyment. It, it's sort of like intruding on it um, because we like, well, I need to know if he's seen the book or not, you know, if he if he's found the MacGuffin. Um, be, because the MacGuffin, you know, for whatever, you know, there's some un, non-obvious question. And, right. Yeah. Well, and I'm trying to remember if it was a po- – I, I, I should have read through the whole thing more carefully, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember if it was Apocalypse World or Dogs or even Kill Puppies for Satan where – it encouraged the GM when a player, when a player character is trying to tell if someone's lying, mm-hmm. that the GM should just make it clear through their acting whether the person is honest or not. And if they're, you know, it's like, oh, if they're telling the truth, just look the player in the eye and say it straightforward. And if the character is lying, you know, kind of get shifty and don't look them in the eye and mm-hmm. and rub your lip a lot. And that, you know, this was, was, I think the, the intent of that in whichever game it was, was it's not very interesting to get lied to and be suspicious and still be fooled anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's a legitimate approach too. Mm-hmm. It's it's like the secret doors rule in, in, in D&D, uh, which allows you to check for a secret door. Uh, you know, be wise enough to recognize that there might be a secret door here. Check for a secret door, roll the dice, fail, completely miss the secret door. There's a bad yep. rule. This yeah. is so, well, yes. this is the gumshoe insight from uh, yes. from Robin Laws is there That's are no good to. mysteries about where the detective doesn't find the clue. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, about interpreting the clues, not finding them. Yes. Um, so uh All right. so we should we- did we yeah. get through segment two? Are we on to how people play it? Yeah. Uh, wait, yeah. wait, wait. I, this, I think we, we've missed really two of the most important things, which both come out of kind of character creation, the way characters work. All four. Uh, which is the links between the characters, the, uh, oh, yeah. the history stat, which is enormously important, that creates a bond between the, the player characters. And the fact that stat sex is actually something which is specifically referenced with its own particular rule on every single playbook, um, mm-hmm. which I think, possibly with the exception of Fatal, is unique in role-playing games up to this point, or up to the point that Apocalypse World came out, anyway. Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, there, there, there have been numerous D&D supplements that are unofficial <laughs> to varying degrees, but uh, in terms of core games, um, there's not... Uh, Pendragon had romance uh, mechanics, I believe, but... Um, yeah, that not not quite the same thing. Um, yeah, uh, this, and we haven't even to... talked about playbooks either. Uh, the playbook character creation system, but yeah, um, character relationships are really important in this, and that that's common in a lot of these powered by the apocalypse games. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. It's it's interesting that during character generation you create these links between characters, but they're just mechanical links. They're not actually narrative links, and I I think that's a that's a missed opportunity but then i'm a narrativist i'm all about the story i'm much less about the rules and the and the game effects and and sex likewise you have sex with another character and it gives you and actually them an in-game bonus uh, or in one case in the case of the maitre d playbook if you hook someone else up for them to get sex with someone else you then get a benefit for that which is a beautiful beautiful little rule <laughs> um 
talking about the tone, the way that rules can can set the tone of of a background world, can set up the the way this world works. That the inclusion of sex quite explicitly, um, and I use the word carefully there. Um, I think is really really interesting. Um, I, th- I think it's it's a brilliant piece of mm-hmm. design. Yeah. yeah, and I I I was just you know now glancing through the book and looking at okay so with this character. If you have sex with someone, that person immediately has a very strong relationship to you, and you get to choose if your relationship to them gets stronger or weaker by a step. And I'm like, and I feel like in play, there is some kind of emergent narrative pattern from that, but I can't I can't figure out what that is just from on the page. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's... It's definitely very clever to have more and more. I'm a fan of, okay, yeah, let's start the players all off knowing each other and trusting each other and having a reason to go forward together. Whether that is just, you know, as you're planning this, you know, you can do it on the narrative side. As you're planning this, have a reason to trust one another because otherwise the game will suck. Yeah. Yeah, or you can do it. You can do it mechanically for ensemble play. <laughs> yeah, or you can do it mechanically, like in Unknown Armies, where every character starts out with a very specific kind of relationship with the other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that what it reminds me of is Gregor Hutton's uh, best friends. Which mm. do, do you are you guys familiar with this? It's, I'm not. I, I know Gregor. Yeah. It, the 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 thing I loved about it is that it's a game of uh, high school girl clicks, and the way character generation happens is you go through each other character and say, "I'm jealous of so and so because she's smarter than me, or because she's prettier than me, or because she's richer than me." And so your character, if all three players say, oh, I'm jealous of Greg's character because she's richer than me, then my rich score is plus three. Uh, but if you, you know, if it's it's varied, your stats vary. And so it innately wires in this set of envies and kind of conflicts, but also explains why people are together. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Apocalypse World does that, too. It, when it starts out, it's like, you are connected to this person this way and, you know, to this degree. It doesn't say whether the... Into- I, I, As I understand, if I remember uh, HX correctly, it's in, it measures intensity, not positivity. So if you have HX3 with someone, you feel very, very strongly about them. That could be... I totally love this person, or it could be, I hate them so much that it keeps me awake at night. Either way, it's given you a powerful motivation to interact with them. Yeah. And I think the only other thing uh, in terms of how uh, Apocalypse World does what it does is the playbook system uh, for character creation, um, which I I highly appreciate because it's really good for one shots. um, And because players can, it's, it's a, this sort of checklist system 
where you basically instead of uh, for your stats and everything, you, you you choose like which stat array you want. Um, you know, choose choose a name, choose one set of stats. Uh, like whether you have a you know which stat will be highest and which will be lowest. Uh, then you have all the basic moves. Then you choose a couple of specific moves for your playbook, um, and then a couple of gear options, and then that's it. Uh, and then you then you worry about relationships and your look. But um, it's it's something that's uh, very easy for new players to get into. And it's uh, something that allows collaborative world building and character group creation to happen at a fast pace. So uh, I, I, and it's easy to expand the game to create a new playbook. Um, like the second edition added a bunch of new playbooks, um, and there are numerous supplements out there for adding specific playbooks. Um, and yeah, it, it's a it's a very good bit of game design. <laughs> um, <laughs> But we Apocalypse World produces new playbooks the way Dungeons and Dragons produces new monster manuals, spell lists, and dungeons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, so, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very true. Because um, when when what you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and when <laughs> all the when all of the setting is implied through the playbooks, you're going to put out a bunch more playbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess now we're moving on to segment three, how, how people, people play, play it. it. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, how there, there are a lot of specific mechanics or sort of advice uh, for structuring a game that the, the MC, the, what the, the master of ceremonies, which is what the GM is called in this book, um, does it. And there's a couple of different uh, uh, one is collaborative world building where um, the players are given or everyone gives input on what the setting is and what's important about this setting. So like, as we, as was mentioned earlier, there's no specific canon apocalypse. You make your own apocalypse and what that means. Um, And there's advice for setting that. And obviously the idea is everybody makes up, creates a unique setting when you sit down to play, uh, which is highly, so like you don't really play in adventures. You just sit down and like, here's what's going to happen. Um, and here's this extremely unstable world of want, need, brutality, and scarcity. You know, there is no calmness anywhere. Jump in feet first. Let's see who bobs to the surface first is pretty mm-hmm. much how it works. There is mm-hmm. so much chaos going on all the time that it's not hard to string a story together because it's just the way it's it, the way the game is structured. Things are already falling apart when you start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very easy to throw new stuff into the background, either as a uh, GM or as a, a player, you can just, because it's so largely undefined, if you want there to suddenly be giant mechanical spiders, there's giant mechanical spiders uh, and it's fine and they will fit. I did. Um, I think I may be the only one of the three of us who's actually run Apocalypse World. I ran it for two or three sessions, and I can't remember. This was years and years ago, and I can't remember why the game petered out. What I was planning, the one of the things that Apocalypse World has is the psychic maelstrom, which has mm-hmm. something to do with the apocalypse. But again, every group defines it differently, and I was planning on... It eventually, I was planning on having it be, you know, standard post-apocalypse, Mad Max, into the Borderlands stuff, 
until at some point they would get far enough and they're like, oh yeah, the psychic maelstrom is Cthulhu. That was the apocalypse. <laughs> you know, if you get close enough to Frank, the coast. Cthulhu, you? Surely not. <laughs> it, it was the early 2000s. Everyone was doing it, James. <laughs> it, was, it was a different time. It's just, I can imagine your players looking at each other going, this psychic maelstrom, what could it be? And looking at you and just kind of going, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I always feel the promise of the psychic maelstrom, which sounds like it's going to be enormously exciting when you read about it. It's never quite, at least within the rule book, it's never quite fulfilled. It's something that's there, and it's something that you know can you know drive you mad if you expose yourself to it too much. Um, and obviously, it's not defined because that's not the way that apocalypse right. world works. But it never really becomes a fully fledged part of the game system for me, at least it, it's um, it feels like probably the only part of the world that really needs a lot of almost GM pre-planning to create something that's going to be interesting. Um, well, that's going to kind of cohere the, the narrative. I would argue that apocalypse world, it is not the point. It is not the, it's not the book's jobs to fulfill that. They want that fulfilled at the table. Uh, the mm. idea that the books will explain it and the books will tell you what's going on in the world, that's very 90s World of Darkness, right? That's very, let's have a meta plot. And we'll yeah, have but what, these... I, what I'm saying is that in, 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 a world, in a game in which everything is kind of dictated by mechanics kicking onto other mechanics, kicking onto other mechanics, mm. the path to that discovery does not seem to be almost initiated. It's just kind of, it's the psychic maelstrom just feels like it's there. It doesn't feel mm -hmm. like it's, it has a purpose yeah. beyond just kind of being there. Well, because being, I think um, the psychic maelstrom is something that is not commonly, it's not a common trope in post-apocalyptic in the, in the genre. Like this is yeah. very much yeah. focused on a certain genre of, of post-apocalyptic settings and like in mad max and the walking dead and any any number of post-apocalyptica um there's not really like psychic stuff now there are some settings that have that but it's it's certainly not a universal feature like bandits are or like um you know weird little fiefdoms and like uh characters who are you know nomads and 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 more you know things of that nature um, so yeah. it, it's kind of feels like, and it's a supernatural thing. Well, it, that's the whole thing is it, it's something that is not replicatable in reality. Whereas well, action movie style fighting stuff like that is kind of like, if you look at it, well, they're just really good at fighting, even though they're doing stunts that would, should get them killed. Any normal things like it's just exact. It's the difference between something that is, you know, overtly impossible versus something that is exaggerated. Um, and I think that, I think that's part of sort of the, um, the difference there is like, what, what is, what drives this psychic maelstrom? Like, are, is magic real or is this magic or is this some weird sci-fi thing? Um, well, yeah. and this is where your English major types can, can set up camp and be like, okay, this, I will make mine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, there is in second edition, uh, there are some differences like there's psi harm, 
uh, like on page 217 of the second edition, talking about like what happens when your character is exposed to the world psychic maelstrom. And then um, the player character will have to roll to see what happens um, on what the character does, whether they just lose their footing or they lose control or um, so. Yeah, it's um, and yeah, so that, that that's sort of like the thing that sort of stands out from the rest of this, because it's a thing that's sort of like not a common trope. Uh, so you have to do some more work about it. But um, yeah, uh, you know. Of course, we could focus on this all all day, but we haven't even talked about really agendas yet. Um, ah, yes. So, um, uh, yes, agendas and fronts. Well, right, in so some, the, well, fronts are uh, for no for our, our listeners. Fronts are in use in first edition, but in oh. second edition, they became threats, uh, uh-huh. threat maps. So, uh, all right, some, I've I've got first edition, mm-hmm. so. So uh, I've got second, but I think oh. it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's the same thing. It's just different language. A refinement of mm-hmm. the idea, which is that instead of statting up a guy who has abilities that parallel a character's abilities, but are a little bit better because you're planning to have three characters have to fight this guy. Instead, you have an amorphous situation or a problem that is unless dealt with, going to grow, expand, and change the uh, the setting in a way that the players will not like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the... the uh, uh, and in second edition, a threat map is... Um, there's eight directions, um, and you, you, you ma- literally... Ma- you have a little map... Um, sort of a, a uh, um, to where you place the the threats in relation to each other and to the player characters. The player characters are like at the center, and uh, you of kind course. of yeah uh, figure out what direction they're coming from, um, and are they working on each other? Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a relationship between uh, the player characters and the resources versus all of the threats and what the threats are doing to each other, um, and. In a very broad sense. Um, I I think it's brilliant. I think it's Mm -hmm. it's genuinely a fantastic way of of mapping all of this stuff. Because when most people think of a narrative, they think of it in simply a linear fashion. They think of it as a a straight line. And this creates it much more. It it gives it another dimension. It's worth saying that, you know, you say it's divided in, you know, north, south, east, west. But the other directions are in, up, out, and down. So this can mean pretty much whatever you want. And, you know, they don't have to be spatial dimensions at all. The emotional mm-hmm. dimensions or, or whatever, the threats do not have to be physical threats. They don't have to be a whole bunch of people in beaten up, you know, Mad Max jerry-rigged cars. <coughs> um, it's it's a lovely, lovely way of, of mapping a, a, a f- the future of, of a campaign or the future of a, a series of, of game sessions without having to sit down and go and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens right it's it's really nice it it does draw up one of the things one of the problems i have with the pockets world which is that the book organizationally is a bit of a nightmare the phrase (laughs) threat maps is used i checked this it's used eight times before it is actually explained in any Mm -hmm. sense and in in none of those eight references does it say we'll explain this later or see page so and so you're just expected to go, oh, threat maps, right, that's going to be a thing. Or it's still going to mm-hmm. be a thing. 
Okay, this is actually a joke I did at Baron Munchausen, introduced the name of a game mechanic and repeatedly did not explain it with the Baron saying, no, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. Um, <laughs> Vince does it for real here. It's, 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 just, easy, it's, it's easy to do. Uh, writing a game can be a li- can feel a little bit, when you've got the mechanics all sorted out in your mind, but have to write them down in an order, mm-hmm. it can be like it can feel like trying to assemble a bicycle while you're riding it. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, but you uh, still got to do it. You still have to explain things the first time you use them, or at the very least, you know, say this will you know th- this will impact a threat map. C page XX. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to put to yeah. type C page XX. Yeah. That's um, why the XXs are in there. It's because people don't go back later on and put the re- put the actual page numbers in, but they remembered yeah. that they should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really <laughs> haven't seen a Powered by the Apocalypse game that does it super well. Uh the the I mean Blades in the Dark did it does organization very well, but that's I mean it, it's an iteration of Powered by the it's not technically powered by the apocalypse, so um, but yeah, the, if you want to look at good organization, look at Blades in the Dark. Like not okay. yet. Uh, like I'm also looking like um, the index. Like the, there's one thing the world's to look it up. The world psychic maelstrom is, which is how it refers to it. The world psychic maelstrom, not just psychic maelstrom, is not listed in the table of contents. It is in the index with multiple page numbers, but not like one like this is what it is. It's just every time it's referred to, it's just like yeah, it's mentioned on page eight, not very yeah. just briefly. But uh, yeah, they're, they're, the organization, I, I would definitely agree. Um, sure. it's, I mean, it's by far the worst offender. I, I, mean, I would put it two or three levels above my current bet noir, which is the Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition player's handbook, which is a fucking mess. Um, <laughs> it's a, the game system is great. The organization is deplorable. And the index is printed in tiny, tiny type. And mm-hmm. I am 54 and my eyes are not great. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a niggle. I'm just, I'm just bitching. Um, who organizes games really well? Well, Blades in the Dark, as I said, uh, it's the first thing that comes to mind. We've got your vote. Uh, James? Um, it's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think the last time I read a rule book and thought this, this is really other than the ones I've done myself, of course, obviously. (laughs) Right. Um, excluding our own work. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's I the hard think, part. I thought I thought Cubicle Seven made a really nice job of the latest edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Um, okay, but I'm I tend to be biased towards that game generally because I'm an NPC. <laughs> in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh. uh, yeah, I, and and I generally don't read a lot of other people's games to uh, to my uh, to my shame. But you know, if we if we wind up doing this podcast. I will mm-hmm. then have all the reason in the world to buy more <laughs> games and stick them on my shelf. Mm-hmm. Back the Kickstarter, force Greg to read role-playing games again. <laughs> um, another example, um, because I have to review RPGs for <laughs> radio, uh, I try to keep up on them. Uh, Lancer does a really good job. Um, okay. for a, because, oh, and it's yeah. a very complex game. Um, it, I've heard Mothership is real. Uh, I don't know if it's the organization. I've heard Mothership has really, really good layout. And the it has really good layout. Uh, it gets a lot. It's a, it's a very dense, like it's done as a zine, like a 40 page zine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the layout is very good. Character creation, actually, your character sheet has all the, the core rules for the game. So you only have to look nice. at your character sheet and play. Um, I do nice. have some complaints with Mothership as a game. Uh, okay. But, 
Yeah, the, the organization design is very good. Um, but uh, moving back, um, the uh, are you ready to talk about why people play it that way? Why people play Apocalypse World the way they play Apocalypse World. Um, I've got three points mm-hmm. for why people play it that way. Um, one is that when you are a GM... The Apocalypse World approach, if you are not a really experienced GM and you are not a super confident improviser mm-hmm. and you do not know how to build the intricate structure of an ongoing story-based tabletop role-playing game campaign, this helps you. It's like, okay, here is a setting where things are just going to happen because there's no stability. What you just need to do is deal with things that happen as they happen, and they will tell you how to deal with them. So the the GMing nightmare, as far as I'm concerned, is that brain freeze moment mm-hmm. when your players come up with some jack move that you did not see coming, and it and the rules say it worked. The oh well, I'll <laughs> just seduce the dragon, and you're like, you'll just what the what? <laughs> I rolled a natural 20 with my charisma bonus. That means the dragon is obsessed with me. I I, uh, I, uh, I have to go to the bathroom now. And yeah. you scuttle off to the bathroom and, and splash cold water on your face saying, think, think, what, what, what is, what does a horny dragon do? What is a horny dragon like? Yeah. <laughs> See, earlier on, we were talking about table kicking as a bad thing. Sometimes you just need to throw it across the room and go, we're done. More than that, it, it allows, it's it's one of the few games where the GM can be completely surprised by where the story goes. Instead of having to sit down and either read a module or prepare a module, or at least as, as I'm sure most of us do, write down a list of names and some vague notes about maybe silver is cursed, question mark. Um, Likes pie? <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know or indeed that that moment where you just kind of you just let your subconscious make it up because of the way it's structured this, the gm still has to do the work but the players are doing a lot of the narrative development work as, as well and bringing new elements mm-hmm. into it um yeah which means it's low prep which means you yes. don't have to do a huge amount of work before a session and the number of people I, I meet and I say, you know, I'm a games designer, I do a lot of role-play stuff. I talk to a lot of, of people, I say, I work in role-playing games, they go, oh, I used to play a lot of that when I was at college or when I was in my 20s. And then it just kind of got away from me. It's, no, you've got, you've got a life and you've probably got a partner and maybe you've got a kid, kids and you've got a demanding job. We don't have the time. The time, our free time becomes increasingly scarce as, as we get older. Um, until the fabled days of those retirement communities, which are just going to be shelves and shelves of games along the walls. Um, I have friends who are actively, actually planning this, planning where they're <laughs> wow. going to retire all together to just play games. Um, wow. Of course, the apocalypse is coming before that happens. Yeah. Um, but having a game that you can, the pick-up-and-play role-playing game is something that people have been trying to create for decades and decades. There was Sandman Map of Halal from Pace Setter in the 80s, if you remember that. I that was know. genuinely... It's extraordinary. And Pace Setter was a bunch of XTSR employees who did Time Masters, Chill, they're best known for, 
uh, Star Ace or Star Ace, I think sure. it was, and and um, Sandman Mapper Falal, and it was a three session RPG with theoretically at least zero prep. And the idea was that you you woke up the player characters, and there were three of them woke up in the middle of a situation with amnesia, so uh-huh. there was no character generation, and there was supposedly a ten thousand dollar prize if you worked out who these player characters actually were. And uh, it was going to be a set of 10 games, and they only ever published one. Hmm. Okay. Well, that um, sounds like uh, Psychosis Ship of Fools, another your amnesiacs in. Yeah. You, know, you wake up on a spaceship in cryo storage, and you're, you know, everything's gone wrong. You don't remember who you were. Uh, probably a side effect from having yourself froze. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and I've been. As I have, uh, as I have aged, and have even as a professional felt less time to spend hours prepping games, I've tried to write stuff that is low prep or prep free. Mm-hmm. Uh, million dollar soulmate, no prep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the forthcoming oh. dueling fops of Vindemir, no GM, no prep. It's just supposed to be a book that runs itself. So my uh, uh, Las Vegas was supposed to be the same to be zero prep didn't end up that way so it's a little bit of a grail uh mm-hmm. and apocalypse world i don't think is quite it, there's you're still gonna have prep but it's gonna be the pleasurable kind of prep where you're thinking about okay well what's big hairy steve thinking about now that donna's run off with war crimes and is his woman now and how's he going to be plotting revenge mm-hmm. and you know, it's going to be like when you are speculating about what's going to happen next on WandaVision or when you are mm. coming up with your headcanon as opposed to, OK, well, I'm going to have to stat up three guards for the front of the fuel depot depot. And I'm going to have to, you know, sketch out a map mm-hmm. of which which can also be very fun, but. Apocalypse World moves having moved away from physics emulation to big drama <laughs> makes it a little moves it towards that that enjoyment of film kind of feeling. There, there, uh, yeah, I, I agree. But I do. There is one uh, thing that I do find annoying about uh, Apocalypse World and uh, a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, I tend to like to run a lot of different role-playing games and I'm sort of unusual, I guess, in that respect, because, you know, you people, are. <laughs> but I do, <laughs> I, uh, certainly it, this also shows is valid for convention play as well, um, is that the Apocalypse world is very, very focused on campaign play. Um, mm. and to, and, and specifically says it's for campaign play, uh, that you should run this multiple sessions in order to get the full, Ew. In yeah, game. and and like one shots are really important. I think for an RPG, like I I like one shots, and I think a, a a one a game should not be should not have less of an impact, or we should not experience a full game just because we haven't been able to put you know that's, four game sessions into it. Over that's you know. not very fair to yeah. sort of the form though, Ross. Saying you know a game can't be a good game if it can't be run in a one shot. Mm-hmm. That's really putting a, a pretty big burden on a game. 
Yeah, but like I feel I mean, okay, so maybe I should reword that's, it to that's say like, like saying all poems should be haiku. <laughs> um <laughs> if I if I have to do more than the three lines to be haiku. I I think I ah. think a game should be able to be run as a campaign or as a one shot without um like like uh, uh, a lot of uh, role playing games are. Um Hard disagree. And, okay. All right, uh, I, you know, because because I've written a game that can't be run as a campaign, mm-hmm. so why shouldn't there be games that can't be run as a one shot? And I, the thing I've picked up from Apocalypse World, I think it actually says, I, I'm trying to remember if it says it, it again. It could be in Dogs, but mm-hmm. it, I I do remember the statement because it was so striking. Was oh yeah, this doesn't really get. It, it can start off good, but it doesn't really get great to like session three or four. Right. Um, and yeah. And so I feel like, uh, if I, there's very few games I can give that sort of commitment to. And mm. it, it's very hard. Yeah, we're getting older. Uh, that's just, that. Yeah. So. I mean, that's fair and that's common, but, uh, you know, maybe you're just promiscuous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, there 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 are a lot of great role playing games that are really great as one shots. Some yes. of the most memorable games are one shots. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean everything has to be a one shot. That's like you know, I I really like desserts, so I think that every food should be able to be eaten as a dessert. Right. Um, the other thing very, is, you know, sorry. Do, do we trust people when they say, "Oh, the game only gets good after four or five sessions"? Forget. Oh God, was it Final Fantasy thirteen? Um, that uh, I played, God, I put about six hours into it. I was reviewing it, and mm-hmm. and it was absolutely horrible. It is the horriblest of the fi- of Final Fantasies. And yeah. I was teaching at the time, and I, I was talking, talking to my students about it, and one of them said, no, no, you've got to keep going. It gets really good about 20 hours in. It's like, mm-hmm. motherfucker, that's Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> if you put, if you invested twenty hours in a game, that you you have to love it. <laughs> That's oh yeah, it's the sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. I should also make it clear that I did call my students motherfuckers on occasion. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm out of academia now. <laughs> how how did that happen? Ah. Oh, um. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> you, you just f- woke up one morning weeping because there were no more worlds to conquer in uh, the, <laughs> the ivory towers of Academe. Uh, no, it's because um, you know the it's, uh, the. Uh, it's, I went uh, a story for another time. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah, um, I ran about episode actually, 187, I think. I can actually feel the pain radiating Aww. at me across the ocean <laughs> via Discord. So we'll just, we'll just yeah. let that sleeping dog lie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Apocalypse World is a game we could talk about all day, literally. We could do a whole, essentially, a campaign of just analyzing, uh, because there's a lot of other mechanics and systems and uh, game design ideas in it, uh, but... In um, in to summarize, at least for me, like I can I I understand why Powered by the Apocalypse became so large uh, in gaming because it, it it did really show people, especially uh, people a new generation of tabletop gamers, that there was there was a different idea, a different mindset of running uh, of of playing role playing games, other than the the sort of mindset that D and D kind of teaches people by default, which is the you know, you're in a box. It, it, we're, you're trying to simulate a rule set 
um, like an MMO in a sense. Um, and instead, it's you are the main character. The spotlight's on you. The, the game is whatever you are doing. Um, and uh, I really appreciate it. And also, you know, player-facing mechanics um, are very important for a lot of reasons. My friend Caleb Stokes created a whole role-playing game, Red Markets, with that idea And um, as one example. So... Yeah, I, I, I quite appreciate it. Um, there, there's jokes about Powered by the Apocalypse being sort of like over and done with, but now I'm not so sure. I think uh, uh, iterations like Blades in the Dark show that there's still a lot of uh, cool ideas and interesting games to come out of this this uh, design theory. So, um, Greg, uh, what are your what, what, how would you summarize? My, my takeaways about Apocalypse World is... Mm-hmm that it is uh, it had a very important insight about the way that GMing could be done mm-hmm. and that it took a lot of unexamined assumptions about gaming about GMing specifically uh, uprooted them turned them on their heads and said it could also work this way and clearly this works for a lot of people something we didn't really get into is I feel that the Powered by the Apocalypse thing also was very empowering to creators. Mm -hmm. Uh, The joke about the Velvet Underground was that they never sold very many records, but that everyone who bought a record, a Velvet Underground record, went on to start their own band. (laughs) And it seems that in addition to Apocalypse World being successful by its own metrics... It's also been successful in teaching a lot of people, oh, you could design your own game. It's not actually that hard. It's not as hard as some people make it look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, it's, yeah. it's been empowering to creators as well as players, as well as GMs. I think. I mean, think of how like games like Alas... Uh, the awful sea came about, which is about being like, you know, a whaler in 19th century, uh, in a 19th century setting. And that, that's it. It's just the drama of Moby Dick essentially. Uh, and the people that are in your life. Um, and like, that's just one of the many powered by the apocalypse games. Um, it's great. Um, sorry, James. Uh, yeah, I, I was, I was going to say, I think you're exactly right. It gives a very easy template for creating new games. It, it almost says, you know, dot, 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 here are the spaces you fill in, much like a playbook, really. Here are the spaces you fill in to turn this into a different game. And it, to the degree that it's almost become the default in indie game design, you now just assume that an indie game is going to be, if not explicitly powered by the apocalypse, at least heavily influenced by it in the way that everything in the previous 30 years would have been heavily influenced by d uh, or in some cases, basic role play. Um, it's now powered by the apocalypse. And I think that, you know, two out of the three of us haven't actually played it. Um, I think I think Greg's exactly right. It will be remembered for its influence, not for or for what it actually was as, as a game. And what some of the people are doing with it, what some of the other designers are doing with it, it's just extraordinary. I think um, for me, Avery Alder, you know, uh, everything she touches turns turns to gold. Monster mm-hmm. Hearts is is Apocalypse World as a game, qua game, is is great, but Monster Hearts is a work of sheer genius. Yeah. Um it's it's a just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um so 
you know, it's because uh, I am I am an English literature graduate, and what I look for is is games that can create stories that touch us, that make us feel something. Apocalypse World. I think there's a distance between the players and the characters that makes that difficult. But Monster Hearts closes that gap in a really exquisite way. Mm. Um, but people should read both of them. If 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 you're serious about games design, you, these are both games that you should absolutely know and and understand. Yeah. All right. I'll check out Monster Hearts. Fine. <laughs> um, so thanks for listening to our uh, episode zero of Leto Narrative Dissidents. Um, I am at Ross Payton on Twitter. Um, you can check out my podcasts, uh, Role Playing uh, Public Radio, um, the uh, RPPR Actual Play, where we do a weekly um, uh, actual play podcast of different role playing games. We're actually doing, uh, as of a recording, doing a Blades in the Dark campaign. Uh, we've done many Powered by the Apocalypse games over the years. Um, and uh, but, but have also- you guys ever done Million Dollar Soulmate? Not yet, uh, but not yet. Um, so we also, um, I also have Night Clerk Radio, a haunted music review podcast, Vaporwave, and Dark Ambient, other weird genres of music, and um, The Big Six, a beer review variety show. Sorry, I, it's like I do podcasting full time. Um, so uh, just follow me on Twitter uh, to, to, to keep up on all those. Um, Greg, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, there's gregstolsey.com, which it's probably its most prominent feature is its downloads and fiction library section. I have been for years doing this scheme where I ask people to pay me for money, pay me money so that I can put short stories and gaming materials up for free on my website. And there is a lot of fiction up there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, at Greg Stolze, I was blessed with a SEO uh, <laughs> SEO name. Yeah, uh, James. Uh, I am at James Wallace on on Twitter. That's Wallace with an IS, like Wallace Simpson, not Wallace with an ACE, like Wallace and Gromit. Um, also, uh, JamesWallace dot com is rather out of date, but does have my resume on it um if you want to buy my stuff i have a couple of things on drive through rpg notably the third edition of the extraordinary adventures of baron munchausen and alas vegas uh the book i co-wrote with ian livingston the history of games board games in 100 moves is available from dawling kindersley uh, in all good bookshops online and otherwise and games workshop has just republished hammers of ulrich which i co-wrote with um, dan abnett and nick vincent it's a warhammer novel now a handsome hardback and still don't get any money off it because they, <laughs> that's not the way games workshop works um <laughs> but it's it's a handsome book and um i'm quite they pleased with my bits sent of it. you a copy for your show they sent two copies completely out of the blue what? Um, okay. yeah no they're they're good that's, like that. like every, that's just every, as good as getting paid <laughs> twice a year I, I get a royalty statement for the last 20 years i've been getting these royalty statements and every time they go no money for you <laughs> oh well um if you want to send us some money then we'll keep an eye out for our kickstarter um but yeah uh thanks for listening uh we'll talk to you all later yep thank you so that was episode zero our plan is to make at least six episodes each focused on a game that backers of the Kickstarter vote on. We narrowed the list of games to 15, which you can see on our Kickstarter page. 
We also have other rewards like a PDF bundle of our games, a chance to play in a game run by us, and a lot more. We have some stretch goals to make more episodes, and uh, this Kickstarter will only run for two weeks, so please back it if you want to hear more. Thanks! Thanks!